anybody wants to come in and get a seat here, we're going to get started. Give everybody, I'll get a drink while everybody's making their way to where they'd like to sit. Okay, at the start here, I would just like to mention a, a personal prayer request for a family that's really dear to us. Um, a church we were previously involved at, there was a man there named uh, Bobby Hall and his wife Wanda, and they were extremely influential on Kristen and I early in our marriage in terms of how we viewed parenting. And his wife, uh, 55 years old, just passed away of cancer this past week. And Kristen and I drove down to the funeral yesterday. So if you'd just remember the Hall family in your prayers, if you want to write that down, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. She's, they're just good, godly people, and they're obviously going through a, a very rough time yesterday. The service was Christ-exalting, and her life was a testimony that goes before her and her children. And it was just extremely encouraging and also extremely sad at the same time. So uh, if y'all just remember the halls in prayer, we would, uh, I know that they would appreciate it, and we certainly would as close friends of ours. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our, um, we'll get into our subject here of social justice. This week we're going to be covering chapter 7, which is the disparity question. And uh, we're going to open up to Exodus chapter 23 is where we're going to start this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to come together today. Thank you for being good and gracious to us. Thank you for the fact that, Lord, even in death, Lord, you are glorified, you are exalted. Thank you that what we do now still has an impact into the future of this world, Lord, as we live for you. That was evident yesterday in Wanda's life. I pray for comfort on the Hall family as they're so close to us and Lord, we just pray that you would just bless them in this time of grieving and uh, be with them. Lord, I pray for our time together today here in this, uh, studying this subject, that you would make my words clear. Lord, allow them to be glorifying to you. Help us to think through this chapter, Lord, in a way that trusts your word, that puts it in front of us. Lord, is the perspective through which we see our circumstances. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. We're going to ask a few questions about this chapter, and then we're going to go into chapter 7. We're going to ask a few questions about this passage, and then we're going to go into chapter 7. It says, You shall not circulate a false report. And this is Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him. If you see the donkey 
of one who hates you, lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay, so we're going to ask a few questions. This, this particular piece of scripture is very pertinent to this chapter 7 that we're going to read today. I sat and I thought, what pieces of scripture relate to what we're talking about? And this is the one that came to mind along with a few others as we go through here. So I want us to take a minute and think about what's here. What commandment of the Ten Commandments is he referring to in, these, uh, few, in this passage here? Exodus chapter 23, 1 through 9, what commandment is he warning them against breaking? I'm sorry? Yeah, bearing false witness, lying, yes. So the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is what is primarily in view in this passage. What is one word that you could maybe pick out of this passage to describe the main point in the way he's framing it. I would look in verse 3 for this word. Partiality. Yeah. Partiality is the main, I think, thrust of this passage. You shall not show partiality. How does or in what way would partiality break the ninth commandment? How does being partial break the Ninth Commandment? What do you guys think? How does being partial, or in what way would partiality, break the Ninth Commandment? Remember, the Ninth Commandment is you shall not bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness, or you shall not lie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if we, that partiality assumes favoritism, doesn't it? If you're showing partiality to one person or another person, you are showing them favoritism. Does favoritism cloud the truth? Absolutely it does, right? Favoritism comes from emotion. Favoritism comes from psychological preference. Favoritism doesn't always necessarily come, right, in the way that we would think of it. It doesn't necessarily come from truth. So partiality assumes, partiality assumes a varying standard of truth. To be impartial assumes a absolute standard of truth. That's why it breaks the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment says you shall not lie. If, if we believe that we can actually lie, then there has to be the perspective of truth defining what a lie is and is not. 
Does that make sense? Okay. So in order for us to judge whether or not we are being partial or not being partial, we have to have a measuring rod, right? To decide, are we showing favoritism and in showing our favoritism, twisting the truth to the point of bearing false witness, or are we being impartial according to God's word and therefore following the truth and upholding the ninth commandment? You see that? See that in this passage? It talks about bribes. I, what I really like about verse 3 is it's especially pertinent to what we hear today. You shall not per- show partiality to the poor man in his dispute. Now, at times in different countries' histories or in different geographical areas, so hear this caveat, there can be situations and it is more likely that the rich would oppress the poor. But today, within the realm of social justice, the poor man are said to know or have the correct lenses by which they can see truth. Okay? It does not ever mean that the poor man is not subject to being oppressed. They can be and are regularly, especially in other countries with different caste systems and those sorts of things. And that even still happens in this country in particular areas and ways. Okay? But from the social justice perspective, which is what we're talking about, being poor automatically puts you on a morally higher ground than someone who has money. No matter, irrespective of how that person gained that money, whether they went to school for however many years, have worked 80 hours a week for however many years, have given up this or that, have abstained from bad behavior, blessings and oppression are the same thing in social justice. There's no difference. If you have, you are an oppressor. You cannot be blessed in the way that we would see blessings from God, according to James. Every good thing that comes down from the Father above, right? Every good thing comes from Him, I should say. Every good thing that we receive comes from Him. Is this making sense so far? I want us to have that, because chapter 7, the, the, the question that we're going to try to answer is the disparity question. The disparity question. The disparity question. He says this on page 79. I'm going to read the first full paragraph. The Bible nowhere uses the word systemic. I'm sorry. Let's go back up to the first sentence. Putting the words systemic and injustice together is a lot like putting the words social and justice together. There are biblical and unbiblical meanings we can pour into those word combinations. That's why we read Exodus 23. I want us to think about this. The Bible nowhere uses the word systemic. But we would have to take scissors and do some serious Jeffersonian slicing and dicing to the inspired text to believe sin cannot be expressed systemically. The Jews' captivity in Egypt wasn't just Pharaoh and some slave-whipping Egyptian underlings treating God's people as subhumans. It was also a system because it was a system of laws designed to oppress people. Do you see that? That's why. It it was also a system. King Darius, who decreed that a person praying to anyone but him would become a lion's lunch, 
and King Nebuchadnezzar, who decreed that anyone refusing to bow to his golden idol would become fuel for the furnace, set up unjust systems. From steep interest rates to ritual child sacrifice, the Bible has much to say about confronting the kind of injustice that is bigger than this or that individual sin. The Bible's commands aren't merely for personal piety, but guide us to display God's justice more radiantly in the systems of earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is what I've been saying every lesson just about, right? Personal piety has an effect outwardly. We must start with individual godliness, being right with Christ, accepting Him as our only way, the only means by which we can come to heaven is through our faith in Him, to come to a new heart, a regenerated heart, and then that regenerated heart, as it obeys the commands that God has given us in His Word, has an outward effect, or at least should, on society. Okay, that's what he's saying here. And this is what, read the next paragraph down, two kinds of systemic injustice. If we infuse the terms systemic and injustice with biblical meaning, then systemic injustice, listen to this, is any system that either requires or encourages those within the system to break the moral laws of God revealed for his creatures flourishing. Remember how the first, the second lesson that we went over, without reference to the law of God, we have nothing to say. Without reference to the law of God, without a standard by which we can not only judge ourselves, but all of the other things that go on in the world, we don't have anything to say. Governments are not, governments are not allowed to subvert God's law any more than an individual is. They are called, created by God, formed by God for a specific purpose, to bear the sword against evil, and to promote the good for those who obey God's laws. That assumes a standard of good and evil, which assumes God's standard because He defines what those things are. Therefore, governments must submit to God's word in that way. They cannot make laws which forcibly put people in a position to sin when they do so. They are in sin. When they do so, they are in sin, okay? There's no difference between us and them in that way. That's what he's saying here. All that's wrapped up in those sentences right there. Let's read it again. If we infuse the terms systemic and injustice with biblical meaning, then systemic injustice is any system, laws in a a government state, right? Any system that either requires or encourages those within the system to break the moral laws God revealed for his creatures flourishing. Okay? I agree with that. That is the Bible's teaching on that subject. Those examples in America that have done this, slavery, chattel slavery, is a perfect example of this. After chattel slavery, Jim Crow laws, which promoted the segregation of blacks and whites, based, just based on skin color. You couldn't use the same, uh, the same fountain. You couldn't sit at the same table at a restaurant. All of those things are perfect examples of systemic laws 
that actually promote injustice. Okay? Systemic laws that actually promote injustice. <clears throat> Flip over one page here. Page 80, he says, Systemic injustice is any system that requires or encourages us to defy the Creator by breaking His good commands. That is the implicit biblical definition that empowered Frederick Douglass and the Sojourner Truth to subvert the systems of American slavery. Sophie Skoll and Dietrich Bonhoeffer to resist the systems of Nazism, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Vaclav Havel to undermine the systems of Soviet communism. Not all of these people are Orthodox Christians, okay? But the, but the Word of God still applies where it applies, okay? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not an Orthodox Christian. He had some really odd beliefs. But the Word of God applies where it applies, okay? <clears throat> he goes on here, down the page. Examples like this, and he, what, he, what he does is he says, if we go with a social justice B definition then these are real-world scenarios that count as systemic injustice. They focus on outcome, not decision-making. Disparity in outcomes equals systemic injustice. Not decision-making. Remember how we read in verse 3, of chapter 20, uh, verse 3 of chapter 23 of Exodus. What did it say? You shall not show partiality to the poor. Is there a difference in outcome for the poor and the rich? Yes. Should we judge them impartially because the person is poor? No. Why? Because there are many different reasons for a person being poor. They can be systemic. They can be injustice. Laws that the government has set down, absolutely, 100% can be those things. They can also be because of laziness. They can also be because of poor decision-making. Okay? There are lots of different reasons why that can happen. So he, he gives these these three bullet points on page 80 that discuss ways, if we just took that bare look at things, that disparity in outcome equals injustice, then these would be unjust. He says, in California, Silicon Valley, women make up a mere 15.67% of tech jobs. Second point. On the New Jersey Turnpike, black drivers received nearly twice as many speeding tickets as white drivers. Third point, mortgage lenders rejected twice as many blacks as whites for, the home, lo for home loans, 44.6% compared to 22.3%, according to data from a 2000 U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Examples like these abound. From a social justice B perspective, the way you spot systemic injustice, this is important, is by looking for unequal outcomes. An unequal outcome becomes a damning evidence that sexism, racism, or some other evil-ism is at the foundation of the system. If you think back to last week when we read the Killing Rage paragraph from the African-American woman who wanted to kill the white man over the plane ticket mix-up, think of how she assumes the disparity. This is her paradigm. That disparity in outcome over a plane ticket, okay, led her to believe that. This is her, that is her applying this way of thinking. The system, therefore, must be reduced to rubble for everyone to have a fair shot at the good life. That's really important. Social justice be thinking follows a straightforward equation. Disparity equals discrimination. Go, go over to the next page on page 81. 
So on Social Justice B-View, right in the middle of the page there, it says, <clears throat> working for a socially just world follows three steps. Spot an unequal, an, an unequal outcome. Interpret that unequal outcome as damning evidence of a racist or sexist system and then overthrow that system. That is Marxism. That is exactly how the Russian Revolution happened and communism took over much of the world. They scapegoated certain people, the rich. Remember how we read about scapegoating last time? They made those people morally damnable by an unequal standard. They took that emotional fervor. It was a racist or a uh, sexist or an oppressive system, and then they overthrew the system. That's exactly the play they're running in the United States right now. It's just history repeating itself. Why did the riots happen in, on the West Coast, in Seattle, Portland, Oregon? This. This is what people are learning at university, and this is what they are applying. Fascism is now defined by the left as anything that doesn't promote an equal outcome irrespective of decision-making, okay? Irrespective, it's one facet, one facet. Does that make sense? Everybody follow on with that? That's what you're seeing on your news every day. If you go back and read, and I, uh, when I talked to the elders about this uh, a year or two ago, if you go back and read Marx, he says these same things. This is why they want to overthrow personal property, you wonder why there was a rent moratorium during COVID that the federal government enacted? It's Marxism. It's a socialist agenda. This is what is happening in our country. This is what people like, um, pretty much everyone on the left, okay, believe. There's a fundamental divide. Now, I have problems with the right, too, especially this week. I've been disgusted in a lot of ways uh, over various things. They're using fem feminists now to discredit Will Thompson, the transgender athlete. They'll marry themselves to feminism who promote abortion and everything else in order to undermine for political power this other transgender agenda. It's disgusting. I hate it. So don't hear me saying just the left. <laughs> the right has a consortium of problems too. This just happens to be where the left is right now and what they are pushing. They would gladly uphold homosexual sodomy, marriage, supposed marriage, in order to gain, keep power from the Republican Party. Gladly. Anyway, that's a side point. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> we flip over to page 83. We're going to keep going here. So those three ways, I'm going to comment on this while you flip to page 83, but those three ways that we just talked about are absolutely necessary. For, the, uh, for this way of leftist thinking, okay? They're absolutely fundamental to it. You can't, you can't be a proponent of social justice in the way they talk about it without assuming, out assuming these things. So therefore, every person who promotes this stuff believes this. They may not believe it down to the T. They may not have functionally worked out every trajectory that it creates in their mind, but they believe this. This is their underlying presuppositions. Okay, this is what they foundationally operate from. 
This includes Christians who promote this sort of thing. And by Christians, I mean that loosely. They could be in error. They could be false believers. That's individually based. But they are gravely in error at the very least. All right. The title on page 81 is Undamning Facts. And what I want to read on page 43 is related to that. Remember how we said that a disparity in outcome equals injustice. Down on page 83, and what he does on this whole page is outline how there's more to the story than just the disparity in outcome. So read these. They're basic examples. I don't want to read over all of them. Okay, it'll take up precious time. But I want to read the last paragraph on page 83. It says, 22 of the 29 astronauts in the original Apollo space program were firstborns. There's a disparity. Are you now, is, are you, do you have injustice in your life because you were born second? People living in the U.S. experience 90% of the world's tornadoes. Asians are underrepresented in the NBA, NFL, NHL, and, and Major League Baseball. Women are overrepresented in healthcare, in attaining university degrees, and in setting consumer trends that determine the actions of the world's biggest corporations. Men make up an overwhelming majority of soldiers who perish on the battlefields and have a virtual monopoly, monopoly of bricklaying, plumbing, and carpentry industries. Jewish people, being less than 1%, less than 1% of the world's population, received 22% of Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 32% in medicine, and 32% in physics. Middle and old-aged white men make up the majority of those who enjoy shows like Frasier, music by Creed, and golf. Over on to the next page. The point is not that there is no such thing as racism or sexism, or other vicious isms wreaking havoc on earth. Sinful isms inflict hurt on people groups that other people groups never have to cope with. The point is that shouting systemic injustice at every unequal outcome is too easy. In a world unlike ours, with zero racism or sexism or any other evil ism, there would still be vast inequalities based on things as boring and undamning as geography, age, birth order, shopping habits, desire to lay bricks, and so much more. That's a really good paragraph. I don't think I could say it much better than that. We are created differently by God himself. You did not desire your birth order before you were born. You did not desire to be born in the geographical uh, location you were born before you were born. All of those things came into your life by God's providence. And when we are angry about those particular things, we are pointing a finger at God. He goes on to talk about the magic equality wand. That is just an application of that very paragraph that I just read. That's just a ver- an application of that very paragraph I just read. So disparity can come from a multitude of things, and narrowing it down to a one-dimensional facet merely gives us license to over and over and over again break the ninth and tenth commandment. 
One, by lying and bearing false witness about our brother or sister who has things that, that we don't have. Or by coveting. They typically go together. In no way is this way of looking at the world able to produce anything other than those results, which are division. Remember what the third goal is after you identify them? It's to overthrow the system. That's all it can accomplish. It's all it can accomplish. It can never bring anything together. One of the things that I hear often in our society around me, especially in the healthcare system, is, quote-unquote, the ungodly sentiment, it must be nice. It must be nice. I have no patience for this. There are a few sentiments that I have less patience with because it functionally points a finger at God, accusing him for not giving you your lusts, which you supposedly are entitled to, telling him you are not content with the circumstances he has sovereignly brought into your life, and it also denies your neighbor his due for the work he put forth to earn those things. Okay? That is fundamentally at the heart of this way of thinking. If you have felt yourself uttering that phrase, I'm guilty at some points. We all experience coveting in that way. We must repent of that as the, as the Christian church. Yes, and be content with what the Lord has provided for us. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says this, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which, having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, old sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. God despises laziness, and many people are in the predicament they're in. Not all. Many people are in the predicament they are in because of that. This is what the Lord promises. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Lord has inherently made the world so that if you work hard, you should expect the fruit of your labor? That's not, the prosperity gospel twists, twists it to make God a vending machine. That's not what I'm saying. But the Lord has created the world in such a way that if you humbly work hard, you should expect the fruit of your labor. Okay? You should expect the fruit of your labor. Page 86. Any questions so far? Page 86, the second full paragraph down. He says, second, I'm not going to read the first point. Second, notice that different outcomes result from different people with different priorities making different choices. This is the part I wanted you to hear. Here is an, iron, an ironclad law of the universe. Different people with different priorities making different choices will experience different outcomes. Not everybody's born with the same intellectual capability. Like, I... I can understand medicine and how to apply biological and physiological principle to an anesthetic patient, okay? I get that. I can tell you about how those things work. If you ask me to do something an engineer does, it's like speaking 10,000 foreign languages to me. Not my cup of tea. I can do subtraction and multiplication past that. Mm, I'm good. 
You know, like I have no desire to do any of that. They would probably feel the same way about me. Every person is created for a specific purpose according to what the Lord has called them to do. Okay? And we should be content in that. And not only content in that, but we should maximize those things he has given us. We're going to hear about that in the last page what we read here. We should maximize those things that he's given us. Not looking to other people, envying them. Being content with what we have and not being a sluggard mimicking the ant and working hard, knowing that God will peaceably provide us the fruit of our labor. I didn't go into anesthesia school expecting to not graduate and not earn the salary that I worked for. That would be silly. I knew that the hard work that I would put in would equate to something, and all of you should feel that way too. That includes not only people who earn a living, but mothers who raise children as well. Okay? Mothers who raise children as well. That's speaking to you as well. God has put you there for a purpose. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Have you heard that before? There is a grain of truth to that. All right. Page 87, second paragraph here. Social Justice B advocates find free markets repulsive because they lead to different outcomes for different people. Because different people with different priorities making different decisions experience different outcomes. Any system that maximizes people's freedoms to be their different selves will end up with different outcomes. If we believe that different outcomes are a priori evidence of injustice, then freedom itself is unjust. Hear that. Moreover, any systems that seek to maximize freedom, such as free markets, must be abolished as systemic injustice. Why? Because of what we read a little bit ago. Different outcomes are the price of freedom. The converse is also true. Tyranny is the price of equal outcomes. Socialism and communism did not fail in the 20th century because it wasn't done the right way. Our capitalistic system is not failing because the idea of a free market is inherently bad. It's failing because we have propped up unjust laws to reward greedy men. The bank bailouts in 2008, why did they need a bailout? Because they were greedy. They disobeyed God's principles. They stole money in the way that they borrowed and gambled in different markets that they played in. And they should have been allowed to fail disastrously. We've propped up this stuff. Socialism cannot win because it inherently breaks the ninth and 10th commandment. It's all, it's what it's based on foundationally. The eighth commandment as well. All right. Any questions so far? These are little side points for you all <laughs> that come to my mind as I'm sitting here talking. Samuel Say's story. Now, Samuel Say is a, a writer who I would recommend to you on this topic. Um, I haven't re- read everything he's written, so don't, that's not a blanket endorsement. But generally speaking, he's, he's pretty cogent and insightful about social justice. He's a black man in Canada, and um, he's had very good things to say generally about this. He says, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is one of my favorite parables. This is on page 89. Jesus' story opens with a wealthy man entrusting his property to three of his servants before leaving on a journey. 
The wealthy man gave talents, which were large sums of money in the ancient world. He entrusted five to the first, two to the second, and one talent to the third servant, according to their individual abilities. Okay, if you guys remember the story, the first and second servant earned talents back to the master, and the third one went and buried it. It says on the next page, but remember there were three servants, not two. The third received one talent, but failed to steward his master's money. He didn't even store the money in a bank to earn interest. Instead, he hid it in the ground and accused his master of exploiting others to increase his wealth. He blamed his lack of profit on his master's character, not his own. So the master punished him and rewarded the other servants. Go on then down to skip one more paragraph. If we accept the doctrine that racial disparities are evidence of racial discrimination, then we are forced to conclude that the master was racist, a God in the parable. Right? That's what I was saying earlier. Many of us embrace this kind of unhelpful thinking when we suggest that racial disparities are best understood as evidence of ongoing systemic racism. But racial disparities are not, on their own, evidence of racial discrimination. Laws or policies that discriminate against people because of their skin color would indeed be evidence of ongoing systemic racism. Slavery and Jim Crow segregation were the tragic cases of, cases of this, but thankfully such laws have been abolished in the United States. Just wanted you to read that. When we, <clears throat> when we say that everything is unjust, we cannot do anything except point a finger at God. We cannot do anything except point a finger at God. Different measures of grace are given to different people according to the plan and wisdom of the Lord. That's, a, that's as much of a rebuke to me as it should be to the left, okay, in the way that I think about things. There are books that I want to read and I get mad at myself for feeling like I waste my time and this and that and the other. I'm in the same boat. I have what I have and I have no more. You know, and I'm, I'm called to be content with that. Any questions before we get into one of those application points from previous things I've talked about? Okay, so I talked about individual things. I want you guys to flip to Genesis right now, Genesis 1 and 2. I talked about individual piety over the last couple weeks as an application to social justice. That's foundational. What is also foundational, because we are talking about societal issues, is family. Family and godly families are the foundation of a society. Without godliness in the family, we have no godliness in the culture. Okay? Without godliness in the family, we have no godliness in the culture. We can't expect it. God, when he created Adam and Eve, created them with specific purposes. This ties directly into social justice. How we view men and women, how we view marriage, how we do children. Think of everything that you hear in the media from feminist propaganda, from ecological propaganda. What I mean by that is what happens out in the environment. How many kids are you supposed to have according to people who are proponents of ecological social justice, zero, right? It, it ties into all this. So don't miss the fact 
that the family is being attacked from every single solitary angle it can be. Because Satan knows that it is foundational and that God's covenantal relations to families are throughout Scripture and it is the primary means by which he expresses his grace savingly to the next generation. Okay? So, we're just going to make some observations today. And I don't know how far I'm going to get into this. I could talk about this for probably a year. So, uh, and we've got until May 8th. <laughs> so, um, I don't know how far I'm going to get into this. But I just want us to notice some things in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we're going to flip to Malachi really quick to, to wrap it up. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, as you guys have all heard this, let, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Question, what, did, what command did the Lord give in verse 28? There are two. What, what are the two? Be fruitful and multiply. What's the second one? Say it again. Have dominion. One is necessary for the other. What does be fruitful and multiply mean? Have children. It is unchristianly, I sinful, to think that marriage can be separated from having children. It is sinful. You will never find a single verse in the Bible that speaks disparagingly of anything related to Christian men and women having children. Barrenness is always looked upon as a curse and something that is wished to be gone. And in so much as we as Christians have bought into the idea of absolute birth control and everything else, we have pushed forward the agenda that comes from the world. I am not up here to tell you how many kids you should have or anything like that. I just want to point out, what does God command? What does God command? Be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because his original intent was for man and woman to subdue the earth to bring it into submission unto his glory, and for that to happen, and I'm going to prove it with a couple more verses, for that to happen, godly offspring are necessary. Adam and Eve could not do, do it by themselves, right? Flip your page over, Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> these are just some bullet points. I'm going to build these later. I'm going to build these later. Of course, there are caveats to physical disability, to medical conditions, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is, principally, you can't separate 
children from the idea of being married. It is not your prerogative to be married and childless if there's not a condition producing it from the Lord. That's against Scripture. Be fruitful and multiply. It is a command. It's a command. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I would gladly repent of my early perspectives in marriage if we could go back to the first five years that we withheld uh, God's hand for blessing us with more kids. Gladly. So don't hear me condemning you in this. Gladly would repent of that. This is just not possible now. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, uh, 7, and then 15 through 25. And God formed man of the dust of the ground... This is verse 7. And breathed life into his nostrils, and man became a living being. Where was man formed? Out of what? Out of the dust. It's important. Keep that. Remember, it's verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. What did God have man do? Tend and keep the garden. Work. Created him to subdue it, to have dominion. Okay. And the Lord God commanded man, <clears throat> saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. What is Eve going to be made for? What's her purpose? A help. A help to Adam. What task did God give Adam? To work. What task did God give Eve? To be a help to Adam in accomplishing that work. What work? Dominion. God's glory everywhere. The Great Commission fulfilled on this side of the fall. Okay. It says in verse 18, And God said... It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Where was Eve formed? Out of man. Is that different than the way that Adam was formed? The differences between men and women are fundamental to their natures. Fundamental to their natures. You see how this applies to social justice? What do you hear from every news channel that you look on? Women want to be men. Men want to be like women. Impossible. X, Y, X, X. Chromosomes. Impossible. They're fundamentally different. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, 
Genesis 1, where we see be fruitful and multiply, is the command that comes on top of. It is the directive of mission for the man and the woman after they are created. 2 tells you how they were created, in what ways fundamentally they are different from one another, one to work, one to help, one from dust, right? One from rib of man. Those, that's what it tells you. It gives you the overarching, <clears throat> it gives you the detailed explanation of what they are. Chapter 1 tells you what their mission is. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. Flip with me quickly to Malachi chapter 3. This is a bridge verse for next week. Just in case you think that I'm, I'm saying, like, oh, that's harsh. Like, that's very strong what you're saying. I want you to see what God actually says in Malachi chapter 3. And, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. He's speaking about divorce generally in this passage. But I want you to see what he says about children. And we're going to get into mothers and fathers over the next few weeks, and then children, respectively. Okay? But I want us to lay these just foundational thoughts. It says, and this is this second thing you do. This is uh, God indicting Israel. Okay? You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. A judgment on a nation. How... Important is it for us to think about this. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you, man, and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? Listen to the Genesis 1 and 2 reference. With a portion of the Spirit in their union. They are one flesh, right? And what was the one God seeking? Tell me what it says. Godly offspring. What was he seeking? What is the primary means and reason for the covenant of marriage? It is godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God regarded faithlessness as stealing covenant children from him. Okay? So... What are the three things, real quick? The Lord made man for a purpose. Man and woman are made differently, yet bearing the same image. And the difference is greater than body parts. The general desire and purpose of God for marriage is godly children. Okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll develop this more. But this is what I want to leave you with. And this has everything to do with social justice. Okay? All right. Let me pray for us. I took us like right up to the brink here. Okay? All right. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to come together. I pray that uh, as we think through the rest of this book and uh, the way